Let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Father, as we turn to your word now, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to teach us. Lord, help us to have eyes that can see and ears that can hear, and hearts that are ready to receive. Father, we want the seed of your word to be planted deep in our heart, that it would bring forth, Lord, the fruit that you desire. Father, we read so much of the benefit of your word, Lord, not least the fact that by hiding your word in our hearts, it will help us not to sin against you. And so, Father, just allow these things we look at this morning just to permeate our thinking, or to change us, or may we be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we read these precious things. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we draw to a conclusion the book of First Kings, although in a sense there's no real conclusion because we move straight on into uh, Second Kings, which as I said last week, uh, is just a continuation uh, from a Hebrew perspective. There's no real distinction between First and Second Kings. It was simply the length of the scrolls meant they got divided at this point. Um, so, but just to remind ourselves what we've looked at, looking at a chart, a timeline of history, uh, right from the, the time of creation, the book of Genesis covers a large period of time. Uh, in fact, it covers more time than any of the other books of the Bible combined uh, in terms of the actual historical uh, time that's covered by the book of Genesis. But the writing of the Bible actually occurred from the time of the Exodus, obviously from the time Moses uh, arrives at Mount Sinai and, and the law is given and so on. So from that time, and obviously the, the things that have been compiled, uh, we read of the book of Adam, the book of Enoch and so on, these, these books would have no doubt been passed down generation to generation. Moses then compiles them and puts them into scripture. Uh, and he says they're codified for the first time here. Uh, and then really the writing of the scripture takes us up to about 90 AD or 98 AD, the end of the first century, um, with the, the book of Revelation um, being probably the last book uh, that's written. Um, and so that's the, the, the time that the Bible was written. Now, the time that we're focusing on is this time of the monarchy here. So really the time that follows on after David, after then his son Solomon, uh, is this period of time that takes us all the way up to the exile, when we find that firstly the northern kingdom that we've been looking at recently will be taken captive to Assyria, and then and that was in 722 BC, and then the southern kingdom of Judah finally uh, in 587 BC will be taken captive to Babylon. And then the nation, just as has been prophesied, will be without a king, will be without a priest um, for a period of time. And then we come to the time of Christ, the time that Jesus is born and obviously then is crucified for us. Uh, and then in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. And really from that point, the Jews are dispersed around the world. And then we come up to this time now, the time that we're living in, that we've seen Israel restored. And we'll talk a bit about that because it's relevant and comes up in, a, in the study in a short while. So that's just to give you an idea of where we're looking historically. Now once again, we've been looking at the king's of the northern kingdom of Israel. As I've said before, the book of uh, Kings focuses on the northern kingdom, where the book of Chronicles focuses on Judah. Um, now, of course, there's some overlap in those things. Some people will tell you that one is dealing with the political, one is dealing with the religious. And certainly there are some um, religious, if we may put it that way, elements in Chronicles, but mainly because they were more God-centered. The northern kingdom had given themselves over to idolatry. So we really do see the, the history of Israel very much contained in kings and the history of Judah 
uh, by contrast, containing chronicles, which, uh, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries, we'll move on into. Um, if not, if the Lord doesn't tarry and we're in heaven, then we're going to get it straight from the Lord, which will be even better. So, we've seen Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, uh, had such a great opportunity, and yet ends up stumbling or falling because... He doesn't trust God. He's concerned that people might go back down to Judah and carry on their worshipping. You remember three times a year the Jews were commanded to go to the place that the Lord would choose. Originally that's Shiloh, but later becomes Jerusalem. And so Jeroboam is concerned that if the people are going down to Jerusalem, they might start saying, well, why do we need two kings? So fearful for his own position, he ends up establishing two shrines, one up in the north, up in Dan, and another one in Bethel. And he's become places of idolatry. And his son becomes the next king just for two years, Nadab, uh, again a, a, an evil king, followed by a change of dynasty now to Baasha, uh, again a, a, an evil king. Um, we read about the, the wars that he had with Israel, with, with Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, and then obviously his son, just for another two years, uh, no real dynasties whatsoever. Then another change. We have uh, Zimri who reigns for just one week, we saw. And then we have this uh, dual uh, regency with Tibni and Omri. Um, but Omri wins out and Tibni is effectively uh, um, cast aside. Omri then for 12 years is the king and he just takes things to a whole new level followed by his son Ahab and Ahab is the king that we've been looking at over uh, the last few weeks Um, we see Elijah come onto the scene during this time as well now we're going to see that Ahab's son uh, Ahaziah uh, comes to the throne, and then another of his sons, Jehoram, will come to the throne and follow on for 12 years, and then we go on from that point, and we'll pick that up when we get into Second Kings. So this is the end we're looking at now, uh, the end of Ahab's life, as we're going to look at it this morning. So let's uh, jump straight into First Kings chapter 22. And we read, And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, now we've not yet come across Jehoshaphat, but Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now firstly, this enemy that is being referenced here, Syria, for three years they've had peace, but there was no need for any of this. Because if you remember, we've seen already that God had delivered Ben-Hadid and Syria into Ahab's hand. And rather than dealing decisively and getting rid of this enemy, the love of the world had won out. You know, Ahab's love of the world and probably wanting to exalt his own position in the eyes of the other nations. If you remember, Ben-Hadad had a confederacy of 32 kings along with him. And no doubt, Ahab's thinking, well, if I make friends with this man... All of those other kings will like me too. You know, and it's not that dissimilar to our own lives, is it? You know, we all like to be liked. We all like people in the world to think nice things of us. And rather than putting to to death some of those things of this world, of this life, sometimes we allow them to live because we think it might give some benefit to us. You know, sometimes we go along with things that really we should put out of our lives. But we do it because it may give us some sort of credibility, we perceive, with those in the world. They might think more of us because of that. You know, so although these are historical events that took place, there's a number of spiritual lessons that we can see in all of these things. 
you know, once again, none of this need happen. If they'd have dealt, if Ahab had dealt decisively, this problem wouldn't have occurred. First John 2, 15-17 just reminds us there that we should love the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You know, what a great teaching, what a great lesson that would have been for Ahab to grasp just the principles of what John later would record for us. So Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, we've not seen him yet on the scene as we've been studying through. If you look at the events of what's been going on down south, as it were, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, becomes king. For 17 years he reigns. And then his son, Abijam, not a good king, um, but for three years he reigns. But then we get King Asa, a good king. A king that loves God. Now, Asa had his problems. He made mistakes. There was a, a classic example, and we looked at it already, by God's grace. If we get into Chronicles, we'll see it again there. How he should have trusted God, not just with the big things, but with the little things too. Great lessons for us. But Asa was a good king. For 41 years he reigns, and then his son Jehoshaphat uh, becomes king, and for 25 years he reigns. And this is the period uh, in terms of kings that are covered by first kings uh, down in the southern kingdom. It's been fairly quiet as, uh, in terms of the reference to them because they've just been going on with what they've been doing, and of course there's been a lot going on up in the north, a lot of battles and intrigue and all sorts of things. Now, apologize for a small print, but it will be in the slides you can look at afterwards. Uh, but just to give you some sort of comparison here, it's kind of a timeline. These are the northern, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Jeroboam there and all these other kings, including Ahab at the end here. Um, and of course, just these four kings for Judah. So Rehoboam, Abijah, uh, Asa, and then Jehoshaphat. So you see the most important thing really to kind of point out here, that Ahab and Jehoshaphat have pretty much concurrent reigns. Jehoshaphat comes to the throne just a little earlier and lasts a bit longer as well. Um, but then Ahab and Jehoshaphat both ruling about the same time <clears throat> so we carry on and the king of Israel said unto his servants know ye that Ramoth in Gilead is ours and we be still and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria effectively what he's saying here is that look we're sitting here we're doing nothing and letting the king of Syria get away with this occupation of our city you know, this is our city, and the king of Syria has taken it. And we're just sitting around, we're doing nothing. So he wants to form this alliance now with the king of Judah to give him some political might, some strength to try and address this situation. Now, just looking again on the map, we've got the division here. This is the Judah, the kingdoms of Judah here down the south, and then the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, really this dividing line, uh, the tribe of Dan, Ephraim, uh, Ephraim uh, mark the border. But then all the way up here, we've got Samaria, which is now the capital. This is where Ahab is reigning from. We've seen this now already. And then right over this side, in the, the territory of Gad, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, uh, this place here, Ramoth Gilead. And this is the place that's in dispute. This place now that's ruled and in the hands of the king of Syria. And Ahab's not happy about this. He wants to go and reclaim it. So this plea goes out to Jehoshaphat. He says unto Jehoshaphat, Will thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. So, effectively, he says, yeah, no problem, 
I'm on side. I'll come with you. Now, later on, at the close of the chapter, we're going to see that Jehoshaphat isn't just a, a, a sycophant. He's not just sucking up to Ahab, just trying to, just to please him here. Because Ahab's son is going to ask a similar thing of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat will refuse. So why is it this time he says yes? Well, possibly because at the end of the previous chapter, if you remember, we see Ahab repenting. We see Ahab humbling himself before God. And as a result, God promising that judgment won't come upon the northern kingdom in his days. And his dynasty wouldn't be wiped out with him, as it were, but his son would reign, albeit for a short time. And so I think possibly because of the humility of Ahab, maybe that's why Jehoshaphat now kind of strikes up a a friendship with this man. Jehoshaphat being a good king, a king that loved God, followed after God's heart, as it were. Now, interestingly, this is the first semblance of a united Israel since the kingdom divided in around about 985 BC. So Israel would not fully reunite until 1948, according to the prophecies being given in the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel actually prophesies to the exact day when Israel would become a nation again. But let's just turn to, if you would, if you with your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Just so we see this and uh, realize the significance of this venture. But again, God wasn't going to allow this to happen at this time. Although they're working together, we're not going to see the kingdoms join together. So if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 37... We have this famous vision of the valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel sees these dry bones and he's told to prophesy, which he does. And of course God asks him the question, you know, can these bones live? And so Ezekiel is, you know, well, Lord, only you know this. Uh, only you know the answer. And so we see... Um, I'm just going to pick up from verse uh, 7. It says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them above. But there was no breath in them. Now that's really significant. Because if we now look um, and jump to, uh, let's go to verse um, uh, 12 and go uh, almost from there. Therefore prophesy, saying, and thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. See, God promising that the nation would be united again and would be brought back into their land. But then, once they are back in their land, okay, verse 13 carries on, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place you in your land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord, and that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, says the Lord. Uh, and so we then get this idea of these two sticks, and the God speaks very clearly of joining the nation back together, the, the Judah and Israel becoming one nation uh, once more. And then um, we read also in verse 22, And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. Now that's happened. We've seen that fulfilled Prophetically, that's happened already. But you see, they've not yet been filled with the Spirit. Their eyes are still blinded. But then it goes on this verse and says, And one king shall be king to them all. 
Well, that king is Jesus. When Jesus comes to establish his throne, his kingdom, and they shall no more be two nations, neither shall be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. And the passage goes on. It's a great portion to study and understand. But we need to understand that when Israel was to be regathered, first of all, it's in a state of unbelief. But ultimately, there'll come a time when they will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they'll mourn. And they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And that as a, a nation, collectively, effectively, they will be revived spiritually. And then for the millennium, when Jesus comes back, just as was prophesied by Gabriel to Mary, Jesus will sit upon the throne of David. And his kingdom will be established. So way back here in Kings that we're looking, we see this kind of uh, an agreement to work together. But this nation that is divided into these two parts would not become one unit again until the Lord had decreed that would take place. And as we've said already, that took place in 1948. Incredible as we look at the, the span of history and see God's complete control of these things. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go to, against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now that seems all very good, doesn't it? Jehoshaphat is saying, look, you know, this is the way I do things. We don't step forward unless God is on our side. And he says, let's pray. Let's pray about this. Let's ask God. And so Ahab says, okay, all right, well, let's, let's ask God. So he goes and pulls all his prophets, 400 of them. And they tell him just what he wants to hear. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not here prophet of the Lord and besides that we may inquire of him he said there's a lot of people that are self-appointed that have something to say but that doesn't mean it's what God has to say we've seen already with the northern kingdom how when it all kind of kicked off with uh, Jeroboam how anybody that fancied a go could become a priest you didn't have to have any qualification you didn't have to be of the tribe of Levi as far as he was concerned it was just priests or us. Anybody can just join in. Now, of course, Jehoshaphat aware that a lot of these so-called prophets are nothing of the sort. He asks and says, now, hang on a minute. That's all very well, but I want to know what God has got to say. Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can ask him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. For he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. You know, if we want to know what God says, well, we've got to be prepared to listen. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlal, and the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. So they're just carrying on doing what they do. And Zedekiah, the son of Kenaniah, made him horns of iron. And he said, Thus says the Lord, With these shall thou push the Syrians until thou hast consumed them. It all looks very dramatic. This kind of little acting out of something. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord should deliver it into the king's hand. You know, the weight of opinion here is fully behind the king to go ahead and to go into battle and so on. And these so-called prophets, just lending their support. 
And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah said unto him, Behold, now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord has said to me, that will I speak. You know, a lot of people prefer to hear comforting words rather than the truth. They don't want to hear what God has really got to say. They want to hear what they want to hear. They want to be told that everything's okay. That they can carry on doing what they want to do with their life. Making their own decisions and going down the path they're going. And they come to church because they want somebody at the front to tell them nice things. Some little pep talk, some little motivational speech to tell them that their life is okay. And they can live how they want. They don't want to hear somebody saying, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you have repented of your sin, there is no eternal life for you. There will just be eternal death. You see, those things are not particularly popular. And most people won't go to churches that say those things. They'll go to churches that will tell them, what they want to hear, what everybody else is saying, because that's, that's a nice thing to hear. You know, don't go and upset Ahab. You know, he's got a lot on his plate at the moment. Just say some nice things to him. You know, and we kind of condition ourselves to just want to accept whatever's nice, whatever's good. So, Micaiah, the prophet, comes to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And no doubt with some little wry smile on his face as he says this. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that now tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? So clearly Ahab aware here that this is just a almost sarcastic response. Yeah, do whatever you want, go on, carry on, have it your way, you'll be fine. He says, no, no, please, tell me the truth. That's the verse 17. And you just detect a broken heart. And Micaiah, Micaiah's uh, heart here, just feeling so sad for the nation. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills. As sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man. To his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, See, did I not tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? Well, we're reminded in Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, that we should, you and I, should preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine or teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You know, I think that time has come. It says, for the time will come. When Paul writes this to Timothy, he's saying, in the future this is going to happen. I think you and I live in those days when it is happening right in front of us. And actually it's been happening for a while now. Where we've got people being raised up that say what people want to hear. 
We see it with the emerging church. We see it with the whole kingdom now kind of idea. We talked about that last week. The idea that the church should claim the world for God. And when we've done our bit and we've brought everybody to the knowledge of Christ, then Jesus can come back and set up his kingdom. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it's going to be. But so many people just love their own ideas. They want to hear what, what they want to hear. They don't want to know the truth. And the king here, you know, kind of pleads and says, look, tell me the truth. And he tells them the truth and he says, oh, see, you always tell me bad things. And he said, hear thou, therefore, the word of the Lord. So this is now Micaiah again speaking to the king. Again, just, just put yourself in this position. Think of yourself. You are, if you are born again here this morning, you are a servant of God. Well, this servant of God has been called, there's already at least 400 people against him. Probably the groundswell of all the other people around. I think, yeah, let's go and claim back this city. It's ours. Being very you know, patriotic at this time. And the king's there wanting to go out. And really, it's all now hinging on what you say. I mean, you could just go for the easy life, couldn't you? But he's already said, no, I'm only going to speak what God says. And he's said, as he's already seen, that this venture is going to lead to destruction and to death. And now he says, Hear there, thou for the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? How, how will you do it? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these thy prophets. And the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. Now, we need to just address this because who are the, who is this um, spiritual entity that comes and presents to God and says that he's going to do this? And Well, we need to understand, of course, that a third of the angels rebelled when Satan fell. We know from the book of Job that Satan was able to come regularly. And when the other angels would present themselves before God, so Satan would do so. And so it was seen this isn't a godly good angel that's doing this. This is a, a rebellious angel. Because of course they just look to destroy and to pull down anyway. And so he brings this suggestion, I can do this. And the Lord allows it. I says, okay. And God does sometimes allow things that we don't fully understand the reasoning for. But here this angelic being and the others alongside go and effectively deceive these prophets that are supposedly prophesying. You know, just how much discernment we need when we speak on God's behalf, if ever we presume to do so. That if we do, we speak what God is saying. Because there are principalities and powers out there that would look to deceive us. And so we need to be very careful. Sometimes we hear things said in the name of the Lord. 
You know, think of what it says in Matthew 7 about those who have done miracles, who have prophesied in the name of the Lord. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. These are people who genuinely thought they were part of the church. And yet the Lord is going to judge them and say, no, I didn't know you. You see, there are many that are in the church that are not saved, that are just going through the motions, that are part of this, just saying nice things, tell me what I want to hear kind of group. So, possibly already aware that he may be saying this at risk to his own life, Micaiah just delivers this message, this vision that he's seen. And then this individual we just mentioned a moment ago, uh, Zedekiah, the son of uh, Kenanah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see in that day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. So straight away, Micaiah comes back speaking with authority. Because he has the authority of God, he's speaking on God's behalf. This other individual doesn't like to be humiliated publicly and so reacts in the way that he does. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in the prison and feed him with bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. <laughs> Micaiah said, If thou return at all in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. In other words, listen, people. God has already said, This is a foolish errand to go on. And no doubt, Mikey, I think, if I'm going to be here, stuck in this prison until you come back in peace, I'm going to be here for a long time. So verse 29, the king, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth, Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I've got a great idea, a cunning plan. I will disguise myself so they don't know who I am and enter the battle. But for you... This is what you should do. Put on your royal robes so that you stand out like a sore thumb and they'll know which one the king is. And we thought, and the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. I just wonder at this point if Jehoshaphat is thinking, this isn't quite what I signed up for here. But the king of Syria commanded his 30 and 2 captains that rule over his chariots, saying, Fight now again. That, that's this thirty-two. That's already been mentioned. Um, these other kings, as they previously referred to, obviously having their own jurisdiction, their own areas of which they rule over, and they've been now uh, subdued by by Syria, and now are fighting for him, and they've been given rule over the various bands of the army, and so they now come and they say, "Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel." They know what to do. They're just going to take out the king. If they take out the king, the people are helpless. There's no coordination. There's no instruction. So it came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely this is the king of Israel. Well, this is probably what uh, Ahab had in mind all along. It's kind of a decoy in a sense. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, please no, no, no. You can just imagine as he realizes they're all after him. You know, Ahab kind of in his chariot somewhere over there all on his own. And all of these 32 captains and their military might bearing down on Jehoshaphat crying out. 
<laughs> Please, you've made a mistake. came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. And no doubt God's grace preserving Jehoshaphat, because as I said, and we'll see, he was a godly king. And as certain men drew a bow at a venture, just by chance, <laughs> and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness, so just cutting right between his protective armour. And you know, just a kind of coincidental thing here, of course, when when we see a coincidence, all it is is God just choosing to work in secret. But God just engineering this. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thy hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. So they're obviously in the midst of the battle. At this point now they drive him out. And as the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians and died at even. And the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. And there went a proclamation throughout the host about the going down of the sun, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. What a tragic end. You know, all the mistakes we've seen him make. And yet, at the end of the previous chapter, we see a glimmer of light as there's this kind of humility scene. And yet, here... Finally, the last act of his life, an act of defiance against God. And just as has been prophesied, we've seen this already, verse 38 tells us, And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked, licked up his blood. And they washed his armor according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. So, in fulfillment of prophecy. We've seen this happen already to Baesha when he died. And now it had been prophesied that the dogs would lick up the blood of Ahab. And that's exactly what's happening. Even though he dies in battle, his chariot's brought back. And this king, his life is over. And we're told in verse 39, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the, very, and the ivory house which he made, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept, slept with his father's. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, once again, we've seen a number of times already in Kings this type of thing. There was just your life in a single sentence. This is it. Everything else Ahab did, apparently he built a nice house. And the cities that he built. It's all written in a book that's long since forgotten. You know, the only book that's last and survived is the Bible, God's Word. And that's the book that matters. It matters what that book says of you. Everything else, everything else you accomplish in life, every certificate you get, every achievement, houses that you build, whatever you set your hand to in this life, none of that's important. That will just get lost and forgotten in the sands of time. You know, this world is not going to last forever. What matters is what it says in God's book about you. That will have eternal value. Of course, it's our relationship to God that counts. And Ahab's just such a, a great example of somebody who could have had so much, you know. Even though he started, and yes, he had a bad start as a son of Omri, who was a very bad and wicked and evil king. But he had somebody like Elijah the Tishbite, 
step onto the scene and speaks in the name of his God and says it's not going to rain for three and a half years and then three and a half years later he meets Elijah again and that situation on Mount Carmel when the hearts of the people are brought back to God at that point whatever else had gone before surely Ahab could have said no this is the God that I will serve you know God is so gracious he gives so many opportunities so many chances but ultimately when it gets to the end of your life the only thing that matters is whether your sin has been paid for and the only way of that happening is by you repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign. Now this is just historically, we're just jumping back in time just to give us the, the, the narrative, the, the context here. So Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. So Jehoshaphat was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shelahai. And he walked in the ways of Azah his father. He turned not aside from doing it, um, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. How refreshing. In all the things we've seen, all these bad and evil kings. And we're told here that somebody that followed after their father and did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. There is a nevertheless. But it's still a wonderful thing that we've got a king over a nation. That wanted to do that which was right. We're told, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. Now, the implication here is that they weren't burning incense to false deities. They were offering these sacrifices to God. The, the problem was, and the reason this is a nevertheless, is because those places had been pagan places of worship. The high places on top of the hills where they could get the best vantage point to worship the sun, the moon and the stars and the things that they worshipped. And of course, whilst they may now be worshipping God in those places, once again they were leaving themselves open to temptation by going to a place that had been used for pagan ritual and pagan worship. You know, and we may be in a place where we are worshipping God, but we need to be careful where we put ourselves. You know, we may not be sinning, but we may be leaving ourselves open to temptation by the things that we do, by the choices we make, by the places we go, the people we mix with, the company we keep. All of those things we need to be so careful of. Again, we were looking at our Bible study on Thursday, talking about temptation as we've been studying through the first chapter of James. You know, and the first step of this downward spiral is being drawn away. We're talking about the way the, the idea is as a, an animal was drawn out of a, a nest or a hole or whatever. One who would trap. And the idea is to provide some sort of bait to draw. And of course for us, we've got to be careful because there's so many things that can draw us. And they may just be very innocuous things. But you see, once we've been drawn away, then we can become enticed. And that's why God says here that it's not a good thing. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. Because it's so easy for us to get enticed. And when we get enticed, well then lust conceives. 
And the last one, it's full grown, will bring forth death. So we need to be so careful that we don't leave ourselves open to temptation. But nevertheless, this king, Jehoshaphat, a good king on record in scripture. And we're told, and Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. We've just seen that fulfilled in the thing we just looked at. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we're told, in the remnant of the Sodomites which remained in the days of his father, Asa, he took out of the land. This king was a king that was set on doing things that pleased God. And here we're told of the Sodomites that Asa had tried to remove and deal with because it had been a pagan practice. You know, we make so much today, don't we, about the whole issue with homosexuality and everything else, as if it's kind of a new thing. You know, and we're often told that those who don't openly accept and embrace homosexuality are stuck in the, the past, that we've got to wake up. There was a question time recently, and there was a, a lady MP for the Labour Party, and she was just commenting and saying that, you know, those views and opinions, they don't have any place in today's world. Well, it was no different back then. Well, we, we think it's all changed. It hasn't changed. It's the same as it's always been. Same problems, same situations, same God. And that's really the key. Because it doesn't really matter what I think or what you think. What matters is what God thinks. And look, actually, if you say, well, I don't believe in God, well, fine. In which case, it doesn't matter what I think or what you think or anybody thinks, does it? But if there is a God, of course, there's so much abundant evidence that there is. Creation screams and testifies that there's a God. If there is a God, it matters what God thinks. And not just about that one issue, but about every other thing that the Bible lists as sin. Lying, stealing, blaspheming, being disobedient to parents. All of those things are sin. You know, and a sodomite, a homosexual, a murderer, a liar, blasphemer, they'll all be in the same place, standing before the throne of God. Whatever they have done, however people have lived their lives, it will still come down to the fact, have you repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that matters. So again, this was addressed, we're told. Joseph had dealt with it and uh, took these people out of the land and there was then no king in Edom. A deputy was king. And Joseph made ships of Tarshish um, to go to Ophir for gold. But they went not, for the ships were broken. Ezion Giba, so there's a, a project he set about, just the hand of the Lord wasn't on it, it didn't go anywhere. And then said Ahaziah the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with thy servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. So he doesn't consent to an agreement here. There's so much in Scripture, and particularly in Proverbs, about being surety for a stranger. In other words, you know, striking hands with somebody, agreeing with somebody, working alongside somebody. You need to be so careful who they are. You know, Proverbs 6, 
1 and 2 says, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, and thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Now, we need to be very careful who we make agreements with and alliances with. And here, Jehoshaphat seemingly has the wisdom not to make any kind of alliance with Ahab's son. Maybe wise now after his previous experience where he'd been kind of uh, set up for target practice for the Syrian army. Verse 50 cares, And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his stead. And the chapter and the book closes. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. You know, that never changes, that refrain. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. It all started with that one man. If you remember, we looked a lot at the life of this individual, Jeroboam, and what opportunities he had to serve God. How the whole destiny of the northern kingdom could have been so different. You know, you think of your own life and the impact you have. If you're a parent, the impact you have on your children, even as a grandparent, because we'll see with Manasseh, the impact he has on his grandson, Josiah, the greatest reformer in the history of Israel. The influence of one person, what difference he can make. I'm told, for he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Now you, just, you know, you just see the devil working behind all of this, just trying to destroy. You know, all these individuals that we've looked at so far, these kings, wanting to do things their way, not realizing that they're being puppets. They're being manipulated by the father of lies. And of course, there's the danger for any one of us that if we walk out of step with the Lord, that we can also be manipulated that the devil would love to destroy our lives, to pull everything down. So, brings us now nicely to the end of this book. We will continue next week as we pick up in Second Kings. And uh, the narrative just continues. And uh, we'll see more of these kings of Israel. There's not a single good king amongst them. Um, but there's still many lessons to be learned. So let's just bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you once again for your word. And... Father, in one sense, these things can be quite depressing as we just look at individuals who had opportunity to serve you and didn't and threw it away. And yet, Lord, may we use these as, Lord, instructions for our own life. Father, your word speaks of the fact that these scriptures that are written aforetime are there for our learning. So, Lord, let us learn from these things. Let us be wise, Father, and not make the mistakes that these individuals made, not wanting to listen to you but rather listening to the things of this world, listening to the things that seem appealing to us. Oh, Father, help us not to be so foolish. But, Lord, help us to be obedient. And whatever the cost, listen to you, to trust you. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. Impress these things upon our hearts that we would keep growing in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.